join me in a word of prayer. Gracious God, uh, we just say thank you for uh, bringing us together this morning. Uh, we pray that you are honored as we spend time in your word. Uh, the Lord, thank you for what it has to say to us. Uh, may it edify us, stretch us, help us grow so that we can be the people that you called us to be. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As the scripture was already read, uh, the, the kind of title that I have uh, in my head today is What is Love? What is Love? In 2680 B.C., uh, when the Egyptians uh, were believed to have built the first four-legged chair uh, with backs, I can imagine the excitement they felt having created something uh, beautiful, uh, something that would give more comfort when sitting and having conversation, uh, something that would be used to uh, create beautiful scenic rooms uh, for centuries and centuries to come. I'm sure it brought some sense of pride when the designs morphed and the concepts became even more intrinsic, complex, and elegant. So I can also imagine the frustration that was possibly felt the first time someone decided to, instead of sit, stand in a chair, only to fall and hurt themselves. I wonder how they would feel now knowing that chairs uh, that were meant to be sources of comfort and beauty uh, have been used to cause physical harm to people. Chairs have been used to cause damage to property. That the chairs that were intended for comfort, that were intended for good, were oftentimes being misused. I can assume that for many creators, the realization is, is that many times things that they create for good are oftentimes misused. And it's a, a, a reality of our fallen sinful nature uh, that we can take things that were meant to be beautiful. We can take things that were meant to do good. We can take things that were meant to give life and destroy them and oftentimes make them dangerous. One of the biggest dangers that we face is the damage done when something is used improperly. It makes me think about how Paul felt as he is writing this letter to the church in Corinth. Sorrowed and saddened because of the fact that this church did not look like the church that he envisioned when he helped found it. Sorrowed and sad that their desire for spiritual gifts had outweighed their desire to do good to the point where they were causing damage to the community. The church no longer looked like the church that was supposed to be a, a, a hub for the gospel, a hub for a transformative relationship with Jesus Christ. The church no longer looked like the church that he helped create. And brothers and sisters, I imagine that if Paul was this distraught that he coined this letter, I can only imagine how God felt as he looked down on his creation to see his people acting uh, a fool. The last time that God was so upset with his creation, he wiped it out with a flood. 
Thankfully, brothers and sisters, that in the midst of all of our sins and in the midst of all of the things that we do that don't look like what God called us to, that um, are out of the character of Christians. He has not sent the flood waters again. But as we continue to talk about love. The realization that we must take from this text is that the love that we are called to is a love that is not self-serving. The love that we are called to is a love that gives more than it takes. The love that we are called to is a love that calls us to action in the same way that God went into action when he saw that we were gripped by sin. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Brothers and sisters, if we don't take away anything else, the, we must remember that that the true essence of love, the, the most important aspect of love, the greatest love is the love that calls us into action for the sake of the other, which often means that we don't reap the benefits. But that wasn't what was happening in the church in Corinth. They had become so devoid of love that Paul had to take the opportunity to really realign their thinking about what they were called to do and the motivation behind it. And we talked last week about what uh, what is my motivation that challenge us to remember that in anything that we believe that we are called to do, if the motivation behind it is not love, then it's pointless. But Paul goes on uh, in verse four to begin to give some verbs to help us understand what love looks like when it's lived out. So as we continue to talk about love, we see that Paul uses uh, 15 verbs to describe what love does and does not do to show the Corinthian church just how far they had fallen from their purpose. This type of love uh, separates itself from Eros love and Phileo love because oftentimes agape love can be unrequited, unreturned. Yet we are called to live into the same type of love because it does not serve us the same way that erotic love does or even brotherly love. Because oftentimes there is nothing to be gained from loving people the way that we are called to be loved or that we are called to love. This is why Paul, I believe, says it was the better way. Because ultimately we are called to love even when it hurts. We are called to love even when it's uncomfortable. We are called to love even though we know that oftentimes we may never receive the same love in return. But isn't that the way that Jesus Christ loved us? Because no matter what we do, we can never repay Jesus Christ for the sacrifice on the cross. We can we can never endure the pain that he endured. We can never uh, 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 say 
thank you. And so the best that we can do is live our lives as a living sacrifice in order for those who have not made life changing decisions for Jesus Christ to have the opportunity. And so Paul, as he continues to challenge the Corinthian church, begins to lay out some verbs, some 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 actions, some ways that they can identify and and measure themselves up against the standards of God. And and, and some of the descriptions that he uses, um, we can take at face value, but but there are a few that deserve a little bit more time. So when we look at chapter 13, verse four, the first thing it says is it says love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Brothers and sisters, the first thing that we understand as we as we take uh, those verbs that Paul uses is that Christ centered love exhibits characteristics that build up those who receive it. Christ-centered love exhibits characteristics that build up those who receive it. What do I mean? The the, the very first thing that he says is that love is patient. And I'm not talking about the, the, the type of patience that you have to have when you get to the grocery store and the person in front of you decides to pull out 75 coupons. And you in that moment of impatience are trying to hold back your frustration or hold back the loud exhaled breaths that you want to give to let that person know to hurry up. But but, but patience in scripture has this has this meaning in the in the in the term long suffering, which is an approach that reminds us that loving people and waiting for them to mature can be more painful to the ones who are extending love than it is to the ones who are receiving it. Uh, but, but it also reminds us that we are keeping hope as we wait. Uh, 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 patience, long-suffering uh, gives us this sense that it endures without seeking retaliation, that we, that we live this situation out believing that something hidden will manifest. That, that love calls us to, 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 to wait it out. Because we know that if we continue to love people the way that God has called us to love, that eventually they'll get it. Even if it doesn't happen when we want it to happen. Even if it doesn't happen when we think it should happen. Even when we decide, hey, you haven't gotten the picture yet. We are called to love people patiently. It then says that that, that love is kind. And, and, and it is calling us to be kind to the people that we like and the people that we don't like. And it's a whole lot more difficult to be loving to somebody who gets on your nerves, somebody who you do not agree with, somebody who has the ability to press that button. It, it, it responds to people with the same tender heart and forgiveness that, that Christ showed for us. That we, we may not deserve it, we may not even appreciate it, but we give it anyway. Love does not envy 
has this 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 dual meaning and and not just jealousy, but also this intense interest in something. And, 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 and scholars note that this use of the word envy here is, is, is indicative of the fact that the that the Corinthian church had so much zeal and so much intense envy or interest in, de, 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 in having and developing spiritual gift gifts without having the zeal that matched to build up the community. What 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 this is saying is that love does not desire to have something without desiring to care for it. Love does not boast, does not brag, it is not proud or arrogant. I think one of the most powerful uh, real-world examples of this is probably a parental-type love. Because if you are a parent, or if you desire to be a parent, one of the things that, that you often will see is that most of the things that you give and you do for your children will not be returned. Being a parent sometimes means that you have all of the responsibility and rarely get the credit. That more oftentimes than not, your patience, your kindness towards your children is met with attitude and ungratefulness, especially when they become teenagers. Can I get an amen right there? And though it's not a a one for one match, I think as we consider our roles as parents and then think about ourselves as children of God, that it, it, it makes sense because we we are often so ungrateful for the sacrifices that God has made for us. We don't often thank him as much as we should thank him for the blessings that he has given us. Yet he continues to do it anyway. And brothers and sisters, we are called as the church to exhibit a love that looks similar. We, we, we are called to live and do ministry in a way that builds up those who receive it. So when we say we love our congregation, our love should look like our congregation being built up. When we when we say we we love our community, our love should be building the community up. When we say that we love anybody that walks through that door, no matter who they are, where they from, what they have done, then they should feel as they come into this place a sense of being built up because our love is patient, our love is kind, our love does not envy, our love does not boast about how good we are, our love is not proud, but our love builds them up. Christ-centered love exhibits characteristics that build up those who receive it. Is our love building folks up? The next thing we see as we look at verse 5 and 6, it goes on to say, it, says, it does not, it is not dishonest. It is not self-seeking. 
It is not easily angered. It, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. But the next thought is this, that, that Christ-centered love doesn't exhibit characteristics that are self-serving and harmful. That, 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 that when we love folks, our desire is not to dishonor them. That, that, that we are not trying to put on display their mistakes and their sinfulness to show how loving and charitable we are. That it is not self-seeking, which also means that, that, that more oftentimes we are sacrificing the things that we want or the things that we think that we want for the good of somebody else. Which is, which is, which is antithetical to what we are taught in our culture because we are taught about our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We are taught to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and that everybody else should be doing the same things. We are taught to, to, to care for ourselves and build up ourselves. But no, God-centered love calls us to not necessarily seek our own welfare, but to seek the welfare and the health and, and, and good of other folks. It's, it's, it's not easily angered. So when we see and we experience the imperfections and the fallenness of other folks, We are not easily angered. And, and, and Paul, Paul was, was, was doing this because he saw all of these things happening in the church. And, 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 he, and he was calling it out because he realized and recognized that these things were damaging the church. The reality of the fact is that brothers and sisters, these things are still present today. Because too many times we have our own agendas, we have our own plans, we have our own desires, we have our own way of going about things that we think are the best. But what happens when what's good for me is not what's good for the body? Do we love enough to sacrifice our own self-interest for the good of others. That's the kind of love that we are being called to. But then it goes on to say this. He says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. But there's a nuance here, brothers and sisters, that I think we must understand. Because when we talk about rejoicing in the truth, it also means that we rejoice in the truth. When the truth is meant to correct us. See, see, oftentimes we, we we talk about speaking the truth in love and we have this boldness and we have this 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 attitude and we believe that we have moral high ground to stand on. We 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 rejoice when the truth that we have is somehow correcting or reshaping or redirecting somebody else. But oh no. What happens when it's us who are being reshaped or redirected by truth? And so it's this duality that not 
just that we speak the truth in love, but it's this realization that we receive it in love as well. So we, we don't delight in evil, but we rejoice with the truth. And so even though there are some truths that, that are uncomfortable for me, that there are, are some truths that challenge my worldview, there are some truths that let me know that I'm not living up to the person that I'm supposed to be, but even in that uncomfortable truth, I still rejoice because when I realize that I allow the truth to change me, that I will look more like the person that God has called me to be than I did before. And so I rejoice in the truth. It's, it's, it's harder when we are the, on the receiving and, 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 and I think that is why is is when I when I think about the church and some of the things that we fight about, it's so easy for us to quote Romans one and to list out all of the sins. And we we spend a lot of time using this this particular verse to 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 condemn uh, a certain group of people. We use this verse to condemn. Uh, we talk about sexual sin and things of that nature. We we, we lift this verse up. Because we feel like we have some more moral high ground, especially when we can have some assurance that we don't find ourselves or count ourselves uh, in the list of sins that is listed. But as easily as we quote Romans 1, we don't take the time to balance it out with Mark 12 when the Bible calls us to love God and love others as ourselves. Because oftentimes in the midst of our moral highness, we forget what it feels like to be the recipients and be in need of grace and forgiveness. Sometimes rejoicing in the truth is this reminder that while we were yet sinners, God loved us. Uh, It's this reminder that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. That in as much as we have grown and matured in our faith, there was a time where there was somebody who was praying for us. There was a time who, where somebody was being kind to us and patient to us and not envying us and not boasting about their growth to us while they were long suffering and waiting for us to mature into the people that God has called us to be. And that when we find ourselves in a position to have to love people that way, we must rejoice in the reality of the fact that we are not perfect, that we are called to love. And that as we love those who are are struggling to be what God had called them to be, that we must be patient and love them the same way that God loved us. Verse 7 says this. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. The last thought is this, that Christ-centered love works tirelessly to show itself in the face of uncertainty. You know, the reality is As we look around and we see all of the pain, all of the hurt, all of the struggle, all of the hate, all of the 
the, the tragedy that is happening uh, in, in, in our neighborhoods, in our, in our world, in our society. Every time we turn on the TV, every time we open up our Facebook app and we see article after article after article. That it can be easy to allow our hearts and our minds and our spirits to be downtrodden. And ask ourselves, what is this really for? What are we really doing? But this verse 7 gives us this, this next reminder uh, that, that love in its truest form always protects. And depending on what version you often read, it, it might say, uh, instead of saying always protects, it says bears all things. But it's this reminder that when we are acting out of love, out of Christ-centered love, that we are called to protect. We are called to protect those who are not mature enough to see their faults, who are not mature enough to understand the destructive pact they're on. We are called to be a bridge. We are called to be a barrier. We are called to, to, to protect those who aren't mature enough to protect themselves. It says that love always trusts. And so, uh, so love lives out the way that Paul is, is, is laying out in this text. Is, is, is reminding us to trust that God is working when all hell is breaking loose in our lives, when all hell is breaking loose in our world, when all hell is breaking loose and you wonder if God sees or cares, but to trust that even though we don't see it, even though that there is no evidence, we know that God is working behind the scenes to change hearts, to change lives, to change worlds. And so we can never give up our trust in knowing and understanding who God is. He says that love always hopes. It's this reminder that no one or no thing or no situation is hopeless. It's this reminder that we know that when people have transforming, life-altering encounters with Jesus Christ, that even the hardest-hearted person can be changed. And so even in those moments where I want to condemn somebody, even in those moments when I want to give up, even in those moments when I feel like all things are lost, love, Christ-centered love, encourages me, compels me to hope against all things that everything can be better than it is. And then it says love perseveres. Which brings us back to where we started to long suffering. It's this reminder that even though the journey seems long, even though the journey seems endless, even though it seems like it's never going to stop, that with the power of the Holy Spirit, with the end goal in mind, we have the, the, the mandate to keep pushing, to keep moving, to not stop, to keep going. Even though it seems like it's a waste of time, we must persevere even when our energy is lost, even when we are tired. That we can't give up. Because love is the most powerful thing that we have. 
but love centered on the power of Jesus Christ. A love that is patient and kind, that does not envy, that does not boast. Not the superficial love, but the the kind of love that brings us to tears. The kind of love that makes us sweat. The kind of love that carries a burden so heavy that it feels like we're going to break. But we're reminded that we can't give up because the Lord did not bring us this far to leave us behind. A kind of love that reminds us in our darkest moments, in our moments where we want to give up. When we are losing patience, that somebody pressed through for me, somebody pressed through for you, that that in your weakest, darkest moment, when you didn't look like the person that God created you to be, somebody loved you with the love of Jesus until you got, (laughs) until you got it. That's the type of love. We are called to Craig Blomberg says it like this. In love, we take God's side, share his outlook and implement his designs. And we treat our neighbors as we know God has treated us. What is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always preserves. That's what love is. Let's pray. Simply, Lord, we just say thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace that restores, that redeems, that frees us to worship. Be with us. We lift these things up to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Receive now this benediction, this reminder that part of our life's journey is living like the church God created us to be.